Hello and welcome to this episode of our Common Ground podcast, Beyond Aporia. My guest today is one of the foremost scholars on World War II, in particular the Roosevelt administration. You've written books about Harry Hopkins, Lewis Johnson, and you're here today to talk to us about George Marshall, David Roll. You're a graduate of the University of Michigan, so I guess my first question has to be, what football team do you root for? <laughs> law school. Uh, Michigan Law School, Amherst College. Amherst College, okay. Amherst College, they used to be the Lord Jeffs, they're now called the Mammoths. But that's I am a, a uh, yeah, well, well, that's a whole other story. <laughs> okay, I uh, gotcha. But uh, has to do with something uh, Lord Jeff did uh, a long time ago uh, that wasn't politically correct, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um and yes, thanks for having me, Brian. I really yeah. appreciate being here. And I am a huge fan and sufferer uh, of the uh, the plight of the uh, the Wolverines. Okay, all right. Football, but basketball. I mean, but basketball's basketball doing school, great yeah, so far. Exactly. Um, yeah, I guess to begin with, everybody knows about Eisenhower. You know, very very famous in World War II. The right. you know, supreme Allied commander in Europe uh, launched the Normandy invasions and everything along those lines. What people seem to forget is that, of course, there was a commander-in-chief, or rather a chief of staff, back in America who was coordinating the entire war effort, including Eisenhower, and was, in fact, Eisenhower's boss to a certain extent, George Marshall. That's right. Um, You know, but I think that if people know anything about George Marshall, they remember the man with a plan, a Marshall plan. So there's a lot of current talk about why don't we do a Marshall Plan here? Why don't we do a Marshall Plan there? Afghanistan, uh, South America, the, the, you know, the, the triangle countries in Guatemala and so forth uh, that, are, that, are, that need help. Um, and so that's when you hear about the Marshall Plan uh, and the, the man Marshall, but very few people know anything more about Marshall than that. Well, it's interesting because the Marshall Plan, of course, came after his career in the Army as uh, Secretary of State. Um, And yet, that's such an insignificant portion of his career by years. By years, that's right. To what he did in military service. I mean, this is an individual who started in World War I, uh, fought in World War I for a a very brief period of time. Um, and in your book, you talk about how that was really formative for him, the, the, the few occasions in which he sort of came under fire. Do you think he would have been happier if he had been able to continue on the front lines his entire career? As a commander of troops, I don't know whether he would have been happier or not. He certainly uh, would not have become as famous right. as he really was uh, uh, when we, we get into his, his career later. Yeah, I mean, he was born in 1880, the last day of, 19, uh, of 1880. Uh, and so by the time of World War, World War I, he, had, he was a fairly mature uh, army officer, uh, a uh, major and a colonel. And he was the first, uh, the second man off the ship uh, that came to France in uh, 1917 with the first division, the, the Big Red Air One. Force, yeah. uh, he was an army officer with the Big Red One. And uh, literally after the general stepped, stepped onto the land, then, then Marshall. And so he, his first assignment was to get these uh, the first the first division trained and ready to go into battle. By the time they were by the time the U.S. got into the First World War, 
the uh, British and the uh, French had been fighting for four years, uh, and they were exhausted. And they wanted, years. They wanted to throw uh, the Yankees, uh, the Doughboys, into the trenches uh, as soon as possible. And General Pershing, who was in charge of all of the French troops, or all of the American troops, uh, his, his task was to get his troops trained so they could go in as American units, not as French or British uh, replacements. Uh, so it was Marshall's job to get the 1st Division ready. And he, he probably a turning point in his career was in uh, late 1917 when uh, Pershing arrived to, to watch a training exercise by the 1st Division. And the general in charge of the 1st Division was not there. Marshall greeted Pershing at the train, and the general's late. That was his first mistake. Uh, <laughs> And then so he showed. Been <laughs> then he showed up. It was his second mistake, and <laughs> Pershing just ripped him, uh, you know, uh, stem to stern, uh, in front of all the other officers, uh, for having an inadequate uh, training exercise in Pershing's judgment. And Marshall, uh, insignificant character at that point, stepped forth, and said, "Wait a minute, uh, General Pershing. I have something to say. I've been here the longest." And, the, and, and this needs to be said. Pershing was, uh, you know, sort of shocked, surprised that this officer would confront him in that way. And then he just reeled off, Marshall reeled off a, a, just a, a torrent of uh, in, uh, instances in which he blamed uh, General Pershing's own headquarters staff for, in it, for its uh, inadequate orders, its uh, failure to provide equipment, failure to provide adequate direction, uh, and basically placed the blame on, on Pershing's headquarters. And Pershing wanted to get away from this guy, and he said, uh, well, I, well, I'll look into it. Marsha said, you don't need to look into no, it. I just gave that. you the facts. Right. Uh, these are the facts. And he grabbed Pershing by the shoulder uh, sleeve uh, and turned him around, uh, or Pershing turned around and faced him and, and uh, he said, these are the facts, uh, General. And, uh, and then Pershing uh, got away. Uh, but all of Marshall's friends in the uh, officer corps thought this was his last day. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he grabbed, the, right. grabbed the commander by the sleeve. I mean, that's It turned out per Pershing was unusual. He actually uh, accepted criticism. Uh, he didn't take it personally. And he apparently thought about it, and then he uh, began consulting with uh, Marshall on a more regular basis about issues in terms of training. The pressure was huge on Pershing uh, from the French and the, and the, and the English uh, to get his troops ready. And so Marshall did plan one major, uh, it was the first major American offensive, Battle of Cantinier which hasn't been written about very much, and I, I, uh, I really dealt with that in detail. Because that was Marshall's, really his only experience under actual fire. Uh, and right after that, Pershing grabbed him off, took him to the headquarters, and had him plan the biggest battle, uh, the battle that ended the First World War, which, had, which was Meuse-Argonne. And so Marshall ended up in the First World War is having pulled off that amazing troop movement. It was really a massive nighttime movement of 600,000 troops. 
And after the war, Pershing made Marshall his, his, uh, his own closest personal aide, uh, his own chief of staff, uh, Pershing's own chief of staff, so that Marshall, right after the First World War, was, was uh, with Pershing in Washington, meeting with President Harding, uh, and uh, becoming you know, a member of the upper, the upper class in the US Army. Uh, at that point, but he still was not, he wasn't a general. He wasn't a general until the mid-30s. <clears throat> I, I think it's it's very interesting to talk about how yeah. Marshall had this, I guess we'll say, uh, habit or knack for seeing a situation at exactly the right time, knowing that this is the moment to speak up. Like, this is exactly the right moment right. to do that. And I, I think we we live in an era of, let's say, duplicity in politics and um, in which it's easy to ascribe certain aspects to people. I know that there are some scholars out there who, with, with regards to Marshall, um, sometimes ascribe to him this sort of um, scheming personality yeah. or the, the ability to climb the social ladder, right. or in, in some cases, the military ladder. Um, do you think there's any accuracy to this depiction of him as sort of a master of self-service? Well, I, I think, first of all, he did have, I think there was some uh, calculation in his persona. Um, you know, this severe, uh, very businesslike, standoffish uh, personality when he was, you know, dealing with major issues. Uh, decisions, sure. I think there was some, some calculation. Was it an act? No. I mean, the day in 1938, November 1938, he was he was uh, insignificant officer in the cabinet room with uh, President Franklin Roosevelt sitting in an alcove uh, near the back of the room. The table in the cabinet room, the table was uh, you know full of. Uh, members of the cabinet, uh, personal aides of Roosevelt's, Harry Hopkins, and so forth, and some of the generals. And uh, this was the day that, that Roosevelt proposed that uh, as a way to deter he, uh, Hitler, who was on the march uh, in uh, Europe, the way to deter him was for the US to produce 10,000 warplanes. Uh, that would be their, their, their initi principal initiative of the United States. Uh, he didn't say it at the time. Uh, Roosevelt didn't say it to the group. He didn't say, I want to sell them to the British right. and the French. Uh, there were strict rules regarding our neutrality right. at that time. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, that was what was in his mind. And uh, he went around the room, and you know, it's kind of like it reminds me of today's uh, televised Trump cabinet meetings when everybody's around the mm -hmm. cabinet table. And they're all the, you know, all the yes men. Oh, excellent idea, uh, Mr. President. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's wonderful. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. Or they're looking at their shoes and not wanting to say anything. As, right. Uh, as the, uh, which, which I think <laughs> has happened quite often in presidential cabinet meetings across <laughs> history. Well, they got to Marshall and, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, the president said, don't you think so, George? Uh, with his cigarette uh, holder gesture. Sure Roosevelt. Uh, and... Uh, General Marshall was a, lit, a little bit put off by having uh, the president call him George. He did not feel he was uh, close enough to 
to Roosevelt to be addressed in that way. Well, he's a general. Uh, he's a general. Or, or, uh, uh, well, he wasn't a general at that point. Oh, okay. uh, and I, he was surprised, I think, that even that Roosevelt knew who he was. <laughs> Uh, but George, don't you think so? And and the marshals st uh, stood up and said, "Mr. President, I don't agree with you at all." Uh, it was shocking, uh, and and he didn't even have a chance to explain why. He just made that comment. Uh, but it uh, it was shock it shocked the room. It shocked Roosevelt. Roosevelt was taken aback. Uh, and sh shortly thereafter, the, the meeting ended. And once again, <laughs> all of Marshall's friends said, "Well." Your, your, oh, sorry, George. And I, he, he was up for the uh, uh, chief of staff job at that point when he made that comment. So it was a very vulnerable point. Uh, and uh, obviously a tremendous risk. Uh, but uh, he, he sincerely felt that this was wrong-headed, that if you're going to build an Air Force, build it, build it the right way, balance it. Have You've got to have air bases. You've got to have pilot training. You've got to do all these Bombers, other things. Spiders, right. You can't just produce 10,000 warplanes and spend all your money on that. <clears throat> so yeah, exactly. He had no chance to explain that, but in any event, uh, uh, whatever Roosevelt thought, we don't know, but we do know that uh, within a month or so, Harry Hopkins uh, asked to meet with uh, Marshall, and they had a, a very long, detailed conversation about what the nation needed in order to truly get ready uh, to confront uh, uh, the Germans. First of all, it was to just to connect, to, to protect the Western Hemisphere, which was under threat if, if Hitler had taken over uh, Great Britain. So Hopkins was instrumental uh, in getting uh, Marshall appointed uh, the Army Chief of Staff because in, next April, <clears throat> Marshall had one more moment with Roosevelt. It was a Sunday in April, April 1939. And the chief of staff job had to be filled by the summer of 1939. So Marshall knew that he was probably called into the White House on that Sunday afternoon, uh, knowing that the president was probably going to discuss that issue with him, in, in which he did. And he said something like this, uh, Roosevelt said, uh, I have it in mind, uh, by this time he was a general, General Marshall, right. uh, to uh, to uh, ask you to be my army chief of staff. What do you think of that? Something like that. And uh, a weedy question. Marshall said something like, not too much. I want to tell you the one thing, and that is, it's not going to be pleasant. Not going to be pleasant. Uh, I'm going to have to tell you some things that you're probably not going to want to hear. And I want you to know that uh, in advance and before you make your decision. And the president uh, smiled and tried to blow him off a little bit. He said, "No, I'm serious. Uh, this, you know, we're going to have this." And uh, so, uh, but the president went ahead and appointed him uh, army chief of staff. And then, just coincidentally, he was actually sworn in as army <coughs> chief of staff on the very day, uh, <clears throat> the day at, I guess it was the day, the morning after the uh, the, the, the Second World War began in Europe on September one, nineteen thirty nine. So I have another another moment in his uh, truth to power kind of uh, uh, attitude uh, that was very important. I, I I think it's interesting we talk about you know the meeting at the White House um, in the cabinet room where he where he speaks that truth to power and on a lot of these I think 
really critical moments in Marshall's life or these extremely important meetings with Roosevelt or with um, the generals. We don't have a lot of record of it. Uh, I think there are a lot of cases in the book where, you know, you're forced to kind of say, we don't know, but based on what happened later, we can kind of draw a conclusion on that. Do you think that that's Marshall intentionally sort of leaving the record empty so that history can sort of judge based on the outcomes rather than, you know, he didn't write a ton of letters. He didn't write, he refused flat out to write an autobiography um, to you know, sort of describe that. He never defended himself in the public eye. Do you, right. do, you, so do you think, based on the importance of these meetings, the fact that there aren't notes, that no records? There were notes, uh, but then you had to figure out who was, who got it right. You know, oh, okay, so right. you would have two different sources. Chip Bolin used to write things that I thought were wrong, and you know, and others would write. So there were there were records, and there was there was one very significant time when Rose, when uh, Marshall insisted that exactly what he said went into the public record. It's very interesting. Uh, much many years later, you're right about it. he never he never uh, he never uh, kept a diary. Uh, and many of them did. Hap Arnold kept oh, a detailed yeah. diary. Stimson kept a diary. All the it was that was it was the era of diary writing. Yeah, and so to to a large extent, Rosa uh, Marshall's record is in those writings because they reflect what he said. But in uh, in 1948, when Marshall had this famous showdown in the Oval Office with uh, Harry Truman, when Truman was president, uh, Truman was running for presidency in 1948 and there was a showdown in the Oval Office uh, in which uh, the question well uh, Truman was about to recognize to be to have the U.S. be the first nation to recognize the new state of Israel the state of Israel is about to be declared May 15, 1948 and there's a meeting in the Oval Office three days before that in which they were debating should you know the president recognized Israel or not. And the, Marshall was debating against uh, Clark Clifford, who was Truman's domestic political advisor. <laughs> and Clifford was holding forth on why the recognition should take place. And Truman had already made up his mind he was going to do it. Right. But he wanted to hear out Marshall. And maybe Marshall could convince him. Marshall's face got red as he listened to Clifford. He didn't think Clifford should be in the room in the first it's place. Domestic, this was, as this was foreign policy. This was not politics. Now, Truman was you know, fighting against all odds in that election. He was way behind. Thomas Dewey. Yeah. Thomas Dewey, and he needed the New York vote. So the question of the, the American Jewish community was in the air. Marshall famously lost his temper. And he said to uh, Truman, Truman revered Marshall, revered him. <clears throat> and he said, Mr. President, you know I don't vote, but, but if I did vote in this election, I would not vote for you if you, do go, if you go through with this decision. The, the room emptied. Uh, Sorry, I've got to go make some coffee. Truman, Truman got everybody out of the room. And so Truman and Clifford were left alone in the Oval Office. And Truman said, he had this old Missouri farmer's expression, well, that was rough as a cob, he <laughs> said. Uh, and 
Clifford, apologize. I'm sorry, Mr. President. I, I think I lost the argument. He said, "Don't worry, Mr. Don't worry, uh, Clark. Uh, uh, Marshall will get over this." But the point I was going to make about the record, Marshall insisted that what he said about not voting went into the public record, and he made sure that um, the foreign relations uh, official foreign relations uh, documents had that statement in the record. He wanted it to be recorded for all history. Uh, so in a few occasions, he made sure the record, uh, you know, and he was, this was a big issue for him. <clears throat> well, yeah, it certainly yeah. was. And um, actually, okay. it, it brings me back to our uh, senator from Grand Rapids, Arthur Vandenberg, who at that period of time, um, with the, the question of the state of Israel, Marshall's, I think, primary objection was that he thought it would cause an Arab uprising, that if you gave away land yeah. to the, make a Jewish state, the Arabs would um, be strongly opposed to that. But there are, again, because we don't have a diary, we don't have letters that sort of explain all of his reasoning, some people have attributed um, anti-Jewish sentiment right. to Marshall. Do you think that there's any sort of foundation to that? I mean, it... It's, it was a different period of time. Right. Um, so, but, I mean, he was very, very adamantly opposed. Was it purely a military concern about right. an Arab war? Which, I mean, as history shows, happened. The, the day after the State of Israel was created, right. there was a war. So I, I dealt with that at length. Actually, in my head, I dealt with it for a very long time, trying to figure out how to say it, and, you know, was there anti-Semitism in the air, um, and uh, taking into account, you know, the time, the times, and what, you know, how right. people felt uh, in, that, in that time. And so it's a, a very difficult thing. And I, I must say that Richard Holbrook, who wrote Clifford's memoirs, uh, Richard Holbrook, the uh, sort of famous uh, diplomat that was recent, recently by, uh, profiled by uh, Packer in his, his new book, which was George Packer. Uh, he suggested in an editorial in 2008 that, that Marshall was uh, anti-Semitic. He's a suggestion. Um, so was he? Uh, what were the reasons for opposing the recognition of the new state of Israel? Why would he do that? Uh, well, the whole national security establishment in 1948 believed that we should not recognize Israel. We should instead do what Marshall wanted to do, which was to continue to work with the United Nations, which fled, it was fledgling at, at that time. The United Nations, this was the perfect issue for the United Nations to deal with. They had already decided on partition. Uh, could they enforce uh, a, uh, a separation, a two-state solution? The problem with the UN was that they didn't have the, the, uh, the tools to enforce. There wasn't in the charter sufficient uh, a, a sufficient enforcement mechanism. So where was Mar but Marshall thought he could negotiate a truce. Lots of luck. Lots, <laughs> lots of luck. No, no one else has had that <laughs> no. success. Or a temporary trusteeship while they work something out. But he wanted, he, you know, he was the Secretary of State. He, he wanted to, to, uh, to, and Eleanor Roosevelt was on the, on the committee as well. The United Nations. Yeah. yeah. So it, he wanted to work something out. <coughs> he wanted to delay. He didn't want to. Uh, he was concerned that the Jews would lose. They were overwhelmed in numbers by the Arabs. But he didn't. You know, 
the greatest military man of all, Marshall, in terms of, he didn't take into account some of the assets that the Jews had. Yeah. I'm not sure whether he knew about the Czechoslovakia supplying them with weapons, and but they, they had, had superior weapons. Generals as well. Right? They had, they had excellent generals. Uh, they had some equipment that he probably didn't know about, but it just in terms of sheer numbers, and then and then the Arabs made some big mistakes. So he thought they would lose. Uh, so and and that was based in part upon his year in China. Uh, so he also thought we would lose access to oil. Uh, so he was uh, concerned back then. Yeah. Uh, Back then, oil from the Middle East was much more important than it is today. So he was basically wrong uh, in terms of his judgment uh, on, most, on most of those issues. I don't think the UN could have worked it out. We didn't lose access to oil. The Jews uh, were superior fighting force. Um, so it turns out he was wrong. But was he anti-Semitic? And you know, what does that mean back then when the Army Corps, he doesn't, you know, he's, where are his friends? How did he grow up? Uh, you know, he grew up in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. And I looked into the Jewish community in Uniontown back in the 1880s. They didn't have a synagogue. There were there was a small Jewish community, but, you know, his friends weren't. His best friend, though, or one of his best friends, Barnard Baruch, later on, they hunted together. They had a very close relationship. But he didn't grow up. He didn't have that empathy that you have when you have Jewish friends. Um, but I still don't think he was anti-Semitic. Uh, I don't think he had a hostility right. toward the Jews. Uh, it was benign. So that's how I came out. Okay. Um, I want to kind of look at a few of the um, more impactful and interesting portions of his uh, career as chief of staff, um, starting with probably the single most important thing for the 20th century, which was the decision to drop the atomic bomb. Hiroshima and Nagasaki in terms of what it created. Um, when, when we fire, when the Allied forces firebomb Dresden and Bremen, I think in Germany, uh, there weren't any objections raised um, that I know of by Marshall. But not by Marshall, right? In terms of civilian losses, casualties of that nature, and um, to a certain extent, firebombing is a conventional uh, weapon. It's something that was well understood at the time, and when. Certainly in Japan, yeah. Yeah, and obviously we firebombed Tokyo as well. Um, so then the decision comes to whether or not to drop the atomic bomb, what are we going to drop it on if we do? Um, and this time Marshall does object. This time he says it shouldn't be dropped on cities, it shouldn't be dropped on civilian populations. He, he kind of couches that language if it has to, I guess, drop it on a military, industrial center in order to prohibit or hurt the war effort. Um, what what changed, I guess, in terms of it, it was okay to firebomb Dresden, a largely civilian city. It was okay to bomb Tokyo, which resulted in a tremendous loss of life. But with the atomic bomb, that was where he kind of drew the line yeah. in terms of allowing for civilian casualties. So just to go up 10,000 feet or so, um, and my friend Evan Thomas is working on this right now. Uh, but there's an arc of uh, acceptance of civilian bombing. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the war, uh, the idea of, uh, 
you know, bombing civilians in any way, a collateral damage was, you know, you don't do that. Right. Uh, Hitler started it perhaps by uh, in the Blitz, uh, bombing, you know, basically bombing civilians. Well, it's but threats. but there, there was a there was a change, you know, as as thousands were killed and, and the war got so brutal and Hitler, the, the what Hitler was doing was exposed. The generals, uh, <clears throat> the Air Force, uh, you know, half Arnold is in charge, uh, began this more uh, obvious uh, destruction of the civilian population in Germany and, and, and Japan. I, as I said, uh, Evan Thomas, I think, is working on a book right now about that. But in terms of, uh, in terms of Marshall, Marshall was not on the decision-making committee. Uh, Truman set up a decision-making committee that had on it Henry Stimson, who was the Secretary of War, and Jimmy Burns, who was Secretary of was he state by then? Um, not sure. I don't think he was on. The, he was not head of the State Department at that point. Um, but he he was a major figure on it. Plus four of the scientists, uh, Oppenheimer and so forth, and a couple of undersecretaries of uh, War and Navy. They were on this committee. Marshall was not. They had no generals or no military people on that committee. They were all civilians. <coughs> and so all Marshall did was tell Stimson, who was on the committee, that he didn't think uh, we should bomb uh, civilians, uh, that it should be a purely a military installation and there should be a warning. He recommended that to Stimson. Stimson did not uh, advocate Marshall's rec recommendation. Uh, Marshall sat in on some of the meetings, but once they made the decision, or as they were making the decision, uh, Marshall did not object. So, uh, in a way, I think Marshall went along with the only, uh, so, and, and, you know, the issue of bombing Kyoto was, that was Stimson's. Stimson was uh, the one that turned Stimson, away from that because uh, yeah. he knew the cultural, I, I lived in Japan for yeah. four and a half years, so okay. I, uh, yeah. You know, I think somebody else helped Stimson, though, with that decision. I can't okay. remember who it was, but I'm going to write about I, Stimson. Uh, no, I, you, I think yeah. you are right. I, I did there's a right. name that I can't quite come up yeah, with. Yeah, there's a guy. Yeah, but it was who had more experience with Japan, right? Uh, but it was a question of I right. mean, Kyoto's right. the largest collection of temples in Japan, right. and it really I think is a good example of America making a, a, a good decision in the war that we spare cultural significant that's right locations. So um, Marshall did not, you know, it wasn't like Marshall was, you know, uh, putting his finger in the dike, or you know, he, he was not. He was not shouting, uh, you got to do that. You know, he, he made his recommendation, and then he backed off, so, to be honest and fair about it. Um, he wasn't a great hero uh, uh, in terms of saying, no, we can't do this, but we need to warrant, we need to get that warrant. You know, he made his recommendation, and then he backed off. Well, I, I think the reason that I ask this question is yeah. because we talk about how in other situations, Pershing with Roosevelt, he speaks up and speaks truth to power, and then in this case, he doesn't. Well, he spoke to he spoke to Stimson, right? Uh, yeah, and he was the only one member of the Joint Chiefs who made that kind of a recommendation. So he was breaking kind of with so, the rest of the military. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, he is reporting to Stimson as you know the head of the War Department. So yeah. he, he did talk to the person in his so chain the, of command that right. he had talked to. Right. Do you think? Um, 
Oh, you, you spent time in Japan. I did, yes. Oh, good. All right. Well, come so back. I, yeah, yeah, I know, <laughs> absolutely. So if you have any questions for your book that you're going to write. Right. Um, if we had had more than two bombs, do you think Marshall would have been an advocate for using them? I, it, the setup was we dropped one to end the war. We dropped, and I've heard, and I've actually yeah. made this comment also, we dropped the second one as a message to the Soviet yeah. Union to say, you know, we have two. We have many. We, we have, have more. two of these. Obviously, if we're going to drop yeah. two, we're not going to drop our only two. We yeah. must have a whole arsenal right. full Real. of these. Right. right. So do you think if we had had more, Marshall would have recognized that it might be necessary and would have said, would have been an advocate for that? I mean, it wasn't his decision to make, but he would have presumably been, you know, had an opportunity I, to. You I don't want to speculate? You know, I, well, no, I mean, I, I think probably if, if the... If the if they hadn't come up with this uh, this proposal to save the emperor, uh, or to save the to, to save that aspect of Japanese culture uh, as a way to get an, a conditional surrender right, in effect, yes. um, and but they were already talking about that. Um, if they hadn't, and 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 the Japanese continued to resist, my guess is that Marshall would have gone along with it. Um, I don't think he would have said no, no. We, we draw the line. We don't want to kill anymore. Uh, I mean, the major thing is he wanted the Soviets. Uh, he felt it was really necessary for the Soviets to come into the war. As it turned out, I don't think it really made any much difference. We didn't really need them to attack Japan. No, no, no. As it turned out, with the bomb. Right. Uh, but if we had had to invade mainland Japan, that, you know, he was, he was, Marshall was hearing numbers right. that were not good. And the Soviets could hold down the Japanese armies in China by invading Manchuria as they did. But no, I don't. I don't think. Uh, I think he probably would have gone along with it. And then the big thing was casualties, right? Uh, and uh, so, and nobody seemed to want to uh, take the time for a uh, for a blockade, mm -hmm. starving them into submission. Which I, you, I mean, we could have at that point in the war. We had pretty much command of the oceans right. in terms of our right. fleet. Had we had sunk all the carriers from Pearl Harbor, right. and right. I mean, we we probably could have. It, would, it might have taken years, but, but to but starve an entire population would have been much, yeah. I think, more brutal so. than what ended up happening. So, uh, I I have another quick question here about um, I think a very good example of Marshall's sort of method of leadership while he was chief of staff uh, involves a little town in England called Newtsford, um, in which. Where are you going with this? Oh, you'll, you'll see. You'll see. All right. So General Patton, who I oh, think right. yeah, I remember. we yeah. can all agree was not known for the virtue of discretion, um, right. he went to a club uh, with British soldiers at which he stated he believed it was the destiny of the United States and Britain to rule the world, right. um, which Ike was not happy about. He wrote to Marshall. and um, He was a speech to a women's group. Right. Yes, yeah. I believe uh, to welcome right. the American soldiers that had, that had come to Britain in preparation right. for D-Day. Yeah. So um, Eisenhower writes to Marshall and basically says, I'm not going to do anything until I hear from you. I, I want to know, what do you think? And Marshall, I think, very well lays out two different courses of action. He says, you know, these are the options you can take, but I'm not going to choose for you. I trust you to, you know make right. this decision yourself. I think 
would you say that it was a talent of Marshall's to find exactly the right person that he knew he could trust below him so that he could focus on other things and not because this was this was a war with partnerships and allies and you know you had to deal with free France and Charles de Gaulle you had to deal with the Soviet Union and Stalin and um, England with Ro or Churchill he didn't have time for George Patton sort of shooting off his mouth and right. potentially damaging I mean the Soviet Union would not have been happy to hear that oh, this is a very perceptive question that you're asking and it, and it has to, it does go to the core of Marshall's Technique or his the way he dealt with with uh, the generals that that he that he entrusted mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in in turn gave his loyalty to and, and this is classic uh, Marshall he basically gave Eisenhower license to to keep Patton in reserve because he was a fighting general and they knew they needed him eventually uh, they, they needed. He was the only person that had fought Rommel, and right. was yeah, and they and and so it gave uh, Eisenhower uh, license. It was almost like saying, uh, "Yeah, we, we need this guy." Uh, but you know, it started when right after Pearl Harbor, um, Marshall's chief of staff had just uh, had just been uh, attacked. The first guy he calls to come to Washington is Dwight Eisenhower, um, and and they have this meeting. Eisenhower has two days to get from Kansas to Washington, and uh, and they have that first meeting, and he says to Eisenhower, "I need you to draft a plan on what our course, what our line of action should be in the Pacific." And, and Eisenhower said, "Give me two hours." Uh, for to come up with an entire course of war, basically a, a, a strategic position, and what should we, what should we do about MacArthur in the Philippines? Is who yeah. trap, right? Um, but then he says, you know, I have lots of generals who uh, who uh, come up with plans for me. I ask them to do things, and then they end up coming back uh, to me and asking. Uh, and tell, give me the options, and then they're just, right. they want me to make the decisions. I said, I want my generals to make the decisions. Tell me about them later. Uh, and so it was It was the beginning of, that was a, an example of his uh, lesson of leadership. And man, he gave Eisenhower a lot of long leash in North Africa. Yeah. Eisenhower made a lot of mistakes. Well, he, and, uh, Rommel he, was kicking yeah. the snot out of yeah. everybody for a while. So, that's right. And so, you know, this this was uh, the development of the, you know, from master servant to mentor mentee, to solicitous father. His relationships with uh, with uh, Eisenhower. Uh, oh, yeah. I have a there's one story that, you know, is in the book, um, and it's just classic Washington that I I love to tell if you indulge me for a oh, moment. Oh no, absolutely, please go ahead. <clears throat> There's a club in Washington called the Alibi Club. Still exists. I was there a few weeks ago. It's a, it's a. Uh, you wouldn't notice it if you were driving down I Street in the middle of downtown Washington, but it's a shabby, uh, narrow, uh, 1880s townhouse. Very shabby, surrounded by you know, ten-story K Street 
skyscrapers. It's 1806 I Street. It has 50 members. Um, and that's what George W. H.W. was a member of uh, generals, heads of the congressional committees, Supreme Court justices, go in and out of that place. <clears throat> and it reminds me, um, when I was in there, you know what it reminds me of is the Indian Club up here in um, Irons, Michigan. It, it, uh, it has all this, it looks like a fishing club, uh, and it has things hanging on the walls that used to be funny 50 years ago. Right. Kitschy stuff. Bad you know, art. No, bad, you know. And <clears throat> it's, it's very dark. Um, but in any event, during the war, uh, uh, I forget his first name, Bliss, the owner of Dumbarton Oaks, which now belongs to Harvard, <clears throat> gave uh, Marshall a membership to, to use the club secret meetings uh, during the war. And when when, our, when when Eisenhower had been appointed to command Overlord, January 44, <clears throat> he was still in Cairo, and Marshall insisted that he come back to Washington. There were rumors uh, about Mamie and so on. Yeah. And other things. And, and Marshall wanted to talk to him also. He wanted to have face-to-face man-to-man conversation. And Eisenhower, I said, I can't do this. You know, I'm about to, I got to get over to London and plan this massive invasion. I don't have time. <clears throat> Marshall said, I'm ordering you to come back. You've got to come back. Uh, Ten days. And you got to be, it's got to be completely secret. We got to keep it from the Germans. It's no mean feat going through the Mediterranean. And no. And, uh, you know, so Kay Summersby drops him off at the Cairo or the Algiers airport. <clears throat> There's a note exchanged. <laughs> Um, and he, he you know, so uh, he arrives with Butcher in the middle of the night at Wordman Park, and they have they have this awkward, uh, you know, uh, reunion with uh, Mamie. A couple days later, it's a sleety night. Uh, Marshall uh, escorts Eisenhower into the Alibi Club, and there are the mill are the heads of the military committees in the Senate and the House, Foreign Relations, uh, Sam Rayburn was there, Stimson was there. Uh, two generals he brought back from the Pacific, uh, Lightning Joe Collins and I think Kenny, the Air Force guy. Uh, and so there's this gathering of maybe 20 people. And this, this was Marshall's introduction of Eisenhower to sort of official Washington on the eve you know, right. knowing that he's been appointed to command Normandy overlord. About to and, you know, they have drinks and, you know, they're all, and Eisenhower's charming the hell out of everybody. Um, he could do that. All right. And they were calling a mic and they sat around this big oak table they have in there and, um, and the generals from the Pacific held forth and Eisenhower held forth. And it was just, you know, and it was part of the reason was, yes, introduce him, but also to, Marshall was thinking ahead, what if this whole damn thing falls apart? Right. <clears throat> you know, or we can't do it. Uh, are we going to really do it? Um, you know, is Churchill going to It's all our back, eggs in one basket. You know, that's right. And so it was partly a damage control, but it was a remarkable moment uh, in sort of, you know, Washington uh, this little club. military 
time, history. And he did the same thing with General Mark Clark later, but that's another story. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't going to really ask yeah. about it. Well, you know what? Could we pause right here? Yeah. Um, so I've got to tell you, Ralph Hallenstein, you know, Eisenhower's chief of intelligence in the Towson. Yeah, I don't know anything about him. Yeah, go oh, ahead. Okay. Yeah. So one of the first conversations I had with Ralph after he approved their hiring me to come over here was about <coughs> what? about Kay Summers being Eisenhower. Oh, really? And so... Of course, Kay Summers, we wrote two different books about her relationship. I know. <laughs> as you know. And Ralph maintained, as head of intelligence, he said everybody knew, including Marshall, that Eisenhower was carrying on with Kay and having an affair. And that part of the agenda when Eisenhower came back was that Marshall wanted to really upgrade him and said, you've got a choice. Mr. I can't document that, okay. but yeah. I, I, I believe it. Was, it. I believe it. If you carry on, because Manny was part of it too, <clears throat> not in the room at this point, but if you carry on this relationship, I'm going to send you back to the Pentagon, and I'm going to, you know, put you on a desk job. I mean, apparently. I, I, and I that's, what, how, that's what Ralph's told you? Ralph Hallenstein, yeah. yeah. Well, she he would know. So I had lunch with Susan Eisenhower. Oh, yeah. Within she the last I 10 did. days. You don't even, you don't. K is not a no, I, I, name. She, she, she doesn't even, I don't, she hadn't read my book, so she didn't yeah. know that I talked about that note. Okay. Because the note is the only evidence. You know what the note is? The note that apparently got auctioned off to Steve Forbes at one point. It's a note that, that Eisenhower gave to, to K. Give it out, yeah. It was said, you know what I will be thinking when I go back. I'll be thinking of you. Oh. And that's that's the only evidence. Well, but this will be yeah. interesting because Hank and I, on, at Richard Norton Smith's on Friday night, after we've had a couple of drinks, it's, it's, should, I mean, we don't want to put you on the spot, but because people who knew Ralph, and Ralph wouldn't even talk about this until the very end of his life. He kept Eisenhower's secret, but at the end, I think he felt that he should, for the historical record, say something. But I was is he is he recorded that somewhere? Yeah. Or is that just to you? Um, I think we have it on video, actually. I can look for it. So he, but again, it's a little bit, I mean, but it's circumstantial. He, he got that from somebody else. Well, he spent a lot of time. With Marshall. I think he and the officers around him observed Ike's behavior. Yeah. 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 Well, it's entirely plausible. Well, and you know, I I I pride myself on only doing stuff that I can document. Right. Right. That's that's absolutely right. uh, But if Hank were to say something, because oh, I'd love to tell tell it. Okay. Great. That's a great story. Great. Okay. But you know, just so you know. General Mark Clark was completely different. Mark Clark wanted to come back. <laughs> he wanted to come back to see his wife. He actually, you know, loved his wife and everything. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't mean yeah. to call this short, but I didn't want that until. No, that's absolutely right. Whether Dave was comfortable <laughs> talking about that or not. Oh, right. But you know, just well, don't tell Susan Eisenhower. About well, I just have one or two, <laughs> no. and then we got to wrap it up so that yeah, we okay. can do the lunch. Dave, turn it back on. Yeah. Sorry. <clears throat>
All right, so, um, so do you want me to ask the yeah. question then? Is that okay? It's okay with Dave. Oh, all right. Okay, so you, um, you brought up Kay Summersby, who was uh, Eisenhower's um, secretary, personal secretary, or private secretary. Um, and there were rumors at the time that the reason that he was brought back was because of um, an inappropriate relationship, perhaps, with her. And Marshall, of course, I mean, Marshall's the family life is, is very clear. I mean, he was very much in love with his first wife and his, his second wife. They were married at different times, though. Right, yeah, no, yes. He was he was in love with both of his wives. No. With 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 each of his wives consecutively. <laughs> but um is do you think that it we'll say we'll say let's assume it's true that Eisenhower was having right. some sort of relationship that might have not been totally proper. Is that a, is that something that Marshall would never have accepted from somebody that was under his command, that sort of um Stain on their honor, I guess. Well, uh, from what you would know, never have accepted it. I I don't know. I think that uh, you know if if it was an open secret among the army hierarchy, uh, yes, he would have uh, he would have tried to put a stop to it. Uh, and you know, I was very careful about. You know, just suggesting a note existed. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I do not have, you know, I do not have evidence other than Ka other than uh, K. Summerby's own book, uh, two books, uh, two books. Uh, I think one, one was more explicit than the other. Well, the first one she denied uh, it, and yeah. the second one yeah. she said it was right. true. Uh, so, yeah, the second one's true, uh, and there is this note. Uh, uh, that exists uh, suggesting suggesting uh, an intimate relationship. Uh, but as to what Marshall actually said or did when they were back, I don't know. I don't have a record of that. Well, it kind of goes so, to yeah. what I said earlier yeah. where Marshall didn't keep a diary, didn't write his autobiography. Uh, and that's why I kind of asked <laughs> earlier whether yeah. he's protecting kind of the legacies of others as well as himself by not sort of making a tell all Say one other thing about his his vow of I call his vow of etern eternal silence because he refused to write his memoirs, refused to keep a diary. He did write a memoir of, of the uh, First World War experience, but he wanted he did not want it ever to ever be published, and it wasn't published until a, a relative found it after his death, and then she published it. Uh, but famously, did not want to talk about his relationships adversarial relationship with Churchill or uh, any of the other uh, generals that he had because he said, look, I'll let the record speak for myself. Now, I wrote an op-ed piece recently comparing Marshall and Mattis <coughs> in terms of the duty of silence. And Mattis said uh, recently uh, when he resigned that he has a duty of silence. But then he also wrote a resignation letter that was a little beyond remaining silence about right. the president. And he also gave an interview after that in which I mean, well, he, he, he made some jokes at the uh, Al Smith dinner. It was a very loud silence. Uh, yeah. So his silence is uh, sort of having it both ways, you know. And, but then I thought, how would Marshall have reacted 
if he faced uh, a president who he was convinced was presenting a clear and present danger to the national security. And I'm not saying that Trump is necessarily has reached that point, but Mattis was faced with a similar kind of thing that, you know, from, uh, his, perspective. from his perspective. Now, is there, is there a duty to speak out? Now, we're talking about two people, the only two people we've had who have both, who are both secretaries of defense and major military four-star generals. <clears throat> do these, you know, do the, is there a duty to speak out uh, if you really are faced with uh, a truly clear and present danger? And I believe they do have a duty at that point, uh, not just to resign, <clears throat> but to make it clear uh, that we're faced with a national, uh, you know. To, to break that silence and yeah, say, this is what I silence. saw, this is what's so, going on. You know, Marshall never had to face it <clears throat> um, with uh, Truman and, and, uh, and uh, Roosevelt or previous presidents. But, uh, you know, I just wonder um, whether that duty uh, of silence should remain sacrosanct. And uh, there, there must be circumstances in which it, it, uh, it wouldn't. But we haven't faced it yet, I don't think. <clears throat> and hopefully never will. Yeah, that yeah would, that's right. That would, that's right. That would be ideal. Well, I really appreciate you coming and talking with us. Um, it's been a long conversation. I'm sorry. No, no, this is on me. I had so many questions to ask you reading this book. Uh, George Marshall, Defender of the Republic by David Roll. It's an exceptional book. If you haven't read it yet, go out and buy it as possible as quickly as possible and, uh, it, it is rather thick but I, it is worth every page you can blame marshall for that yes it's worth every it's worth every page and every minute of reading so thank you very much again for coming right. and um have, have a great have a great rest of your day thank you Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Hauenstein Center's Common Ground Initiative at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Hauenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. I've been your host, Brian Smith. The Center is inspired by Ralph Hauenstein's life of service and leadership. For more information, visit us at gvsu.edu hc or look us up on Facebook.